Well, the phone call left John reeling. The test results were back, and they confirmed his worst fears. He was told to make an appointment with the doctor as soon as possible to determine the next steps. And John knew that surgery and rounds of treatment would now be part of his life story. He started the process of grief, which most people do as they go through challenging times. Denial and anger and questioning. And he was still in that process when he, when he checked into the hospital. After he returned from surgery, several friends came to see him. And John was a bit surprised at how fidgety and nervous these friends were. He was also a bit surprised at how many friends really never called. He started hearing the same Christian cliches. God is good, John, all the time, and all the time, God is good. John, God has a great purpose for your life. John, God will never give you anything more than you can handle. He knew every statement was true. But why didn't he want to hear them at that point? John was taken back by some of the questions that he got. When Tom brought his favorite ice cream between bites, Tom said, John, how long did they give you? And John about choked on his Ben and Jerry's chunky monkey when he told Tom, my cancer at my stage is between three and five years. Tom said, that's okay. I'm sure the rapture will take place before that. Tom left with the promise to grill steaks in the spring, and John was so excited about even the thought of being strong enough to go sit on Tom's back deck and have steaks. The day Ed stopped by, John was feeling a little better, and Ed had some news he couldn't wait to share. Ed's aunt had a friend whose husband's son had the exact same kind of cancer. And Ed's aunt's friend's husband's son had started a strict diet, no dairy, no meat, among other things. John laughed, wondering if Tom was trying to kill him with the ice cream and the promise of steaks. John knew that diet would probably be a good thing. He had never eaten terribly. But right now his wife was burdened with getting three active kids to sports and dance, and he was trying to gain all the strength he could just to make it to his daughter's first lacrosse game. He was too exhausted to make a big decision and make plans such as, such as a life change like that. Maybe someday, maybe the best thing, but just, just not today. John was even confused when he met with the elders. John had read in James chapter 5, these words, James chapter 5, 13 through 15, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let, him, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And the elders had anointed him and they had prayed fervently. But then they added God's your will be done in John's life. And, and John didn't see that in the passage. 
He knew that was the right thing to pray. He knew that's how Jesus prayed. But honestly, he felt it was a cop-out when he needed strong, fervent prayer for healing. John's story is not any one person I've ever known, but it's a collage of stories I've heard over the years. When, when, when people are going through suffering, they need encouragement and they need comfort, and they often get information, instruction, and ways to fix their situation. And that's what happened to a man named Job. We're studying through the book of Job, a man God described as blameless and upright. He feared God, and he turned from evil, <clears throat> and tragedy struck. Job lost his ten children, all of his wealth and his health, and while he never turned his back on God, last time we saw at the end of chapter 3, Job is, had to leave his home. He's sitting at the city dump among the ashes, and he's wishing first he hadn't been born, and then he's wishing he was still born, and then he was wishing that God would just end his misery and take his life. Three friends came to see Job. A guy named Eliphaz, a guy named Bildad, and a guy named Zophar. And when they saw Job, they were so devastated by the disease, they couldn't even recognize him because Job was just distorted. They tore their robes and they sat in, in grief for seven days in silence. And then they began to speak. Job chapter 4, verses, or Job chapter 4 through Job 31 is the conversation between Job and these three men. There are three conversations with uh, Eliphaz, there are three conversations with Bildad, and then there's two with Zophar. And today, I want to consider all the conversations with Eliphaz, who was probably the oldest of the three men, and thus given the honor to speak first. He had, he had listened to, to Job's painful words recorded in chapter 3, where Job had wished he hadn't been born and wished he was dying, and now he responds to that. So take your Bibles, and let's look at Job chapter 4. Having heard Job's complaints in chapter 3, Eliphaz's first words are these, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? It seems like, Job, after your words of chapter 3, you're impatient, waiting on God. So if I venture some words with you, are you going to respond to me just like you responded to God? And then Eliphaz says, look, Job, here's the deal. You have instructed people. You've told people how to live. When, you, when things were going well with you, 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 were, you were telling them what to do, and you were instructing them, and it was all good. But now something happened to you, and you're dismayed, and you're impatient with God. Now, that was true, but hardly appropriate to tell a man who is suffering. Job needed encouragement and support. Instead, he received a rebuke. The theme of Eliphaz's argument is, has his theology is based on two things. 
two things that Eliphaz has as his philosophy and his theology. Do the right thing. Eliphaz says, do the right thing and things will go well with you. If you do the right thing, things are going to go well with you. Do the wrong thing and what? God will punish you. Do the right thing, you're going to be blessed. Do the wrong thing, God's going to punish you. In other words, obedience is like a, a coin that you put into. Remember those old gumball machines? They, weren't, they had little plastic things with little prizes in them. Remember those? You put in that coin of obedience, and you always get a prize. Now, most people would agree that God ultimately blesses obedience, right? Would we say that? God ultimately blesses obedience. One day, those of us who trust in him, only by his grace, that obedience of faith, one day we're going to be ushered into heaven. And, and Scripture talks about the rewards of heaven. We all agree that ultimately God blesses the obedience of faith, right? But, but the book of Job, but the book of Job is, is not about, is God good enough for eternity? That's not what the book of Job is about. The book of Job is about, is God good enough for today? Is God enough for today? Is God enough in real life, in real time? And, and, and many people in pain, at some point or another, will ask, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to bring this on? And Eliphaz would say, well, I don't know what you did, Job, but you did something. Your suffering is a result of your pain. Look at chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Eliphaz says, remember who that was innocent has ever, been, has ever perished. Or, or, or where were the upright cut off? Show me, Job. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now, if you have your Bibles, mark those words, as I have seen. That is a teller for Eliphaz. Everything Eliphaz is going to tell Job is based on his observations and his personal knowledge. What he has seen and experienced in his lifetime. The problem is he hasn't seen and experienced everything. For sure, he didn't know what happened in chapter 1 and 2 regarding that heavenly council. So what he's telling Job is not according to God's word. And we learn something here about comforting others. There's no need for us to pretend to know what God's doing when we don't know what God is doing. And then just add a bunch of Christian cliches. So based on Eliphaz's experience, he has the solution. He's going to fix the problem. Look at chapter 5, uh, verse uh, uh, five, uh, verse 8, he just says, As for me, Job, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. You just need to turn to God, and you need to repent. 
if you'll just repent of your sins, Job, because God is punishing you for your sins, that's the way this works. There's no way you would be in this situation if you hadn't sinned. If you just repent, then God's going to bring your health back. Job responds with two passionate appeals. First of all, he just declares, I'm innocent. I'm not perfect, but I've not done anything. There's no outstanding sin in my life to have caused this. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. He's at the end of verse 10. For I have not denied the words of the Holy One. I've stayed in touch with God. I've been walking with God. God himself said he was blameless and upright and feared God and turned from evil. And then Job gets real with God. Most of Job's response is always to God. Look at chapter 7, verse 20 and 21. Job said, if I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you, why have you made your mark on me? Why have I become a burden to you? Think about what's going on in John's heart. God, why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? If that's the issue. For now I shall lie in the earth and you will seek me but shall not find me. See in those verses? Why, why, why? The cry of the suffering heart. Job's plea to God is is a bitter cry of despair. His his life is quickly passing away. There's no relief in sight. And throughout the book, Job never thinks he's going to recover. He's in such a desperate situation, he just can't ever see himself recovering. But Job's pain, it doesn't stop Eliphaz. Remember, he knows it all. Because he's experienced it all, or so he thinks, and he knows how to fix the problem. And so he comes back at Job in the second round of of conversation, even stronger. And in the first round, there was a tinge of sympathy, but not anymore. Eliphaz turns up the heat. Now we're in chapter 15 in this second round. Look at verses 7 through 10. 7 and 9, rather. Eliphaz said, Job, who do you think you are? Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth from the hills? Have you listened to the counsel of God? Do you, do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? And then in the rest of his, of his speech, if Job's suffering wasn't enough, Eliphaz, we won't look at them all, but Eliphaz in rapid fire goes through 17 troubles that come on wicked people. Just in case Job's troubles weren't enough. Job's fed up by this. He responds in chapter 16. Look at verse 2. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. I just need some comfort. I don't need to be fixed. I don't need to be instructed. I don't need to be challenged. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words, verse 3, shall windy words have an end? When are you going to stop talking? Job is fed up with his counselors, 
but he also has some things to say to God. Chapter 16, verse 7. Surely now God has what? Worn me out. You ever feel like that? Surely God has worn me out. Look in into verse 12. God has set me up as his target. In another passage, it's like God is shooting arrows at him. And then verse 19. My, my or verse 16 rather, my face is red with weeping and my eyelids in deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hand and my prayer is pure. God, I don't understand this. Job knew that he, he couldn't convince Eliphaz of his innocence, so he turned to God. Look at verse, chapter 16, verse 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. God, you are my witness. You know all things. Eliphaz doesn't know a thing, but you know all things. My witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. God, you're the one who can, you know my, my situation. You can testify for me. Job just wants some encouragement. Eliphaz wants to fix Job. There has to be an underlying sin here. And now the accusations start again. Look at chapter 22 in this third round of conversation. Eliphaz says in verse 4, It is for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you. Job, there's got to be something going on in your life. If you'll just listen to me and if you'll follow me, we're going to figure this out together. Um, is not your evil abundant? Can't you admit it? For you have exacted pledges of brothers for nothing. Job, somewhere along the line, you can't even remember it because your evil is so abundant, but you've exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. You stripped the naked of their clothing you, you, there was a time, there was a time, Job, you just think about it, when you gave no water to the weary to drink and you withheld bread from the hungry. Job, you had to have done something wrong. Look at verse 8. The man with power possesses the land and the favored man live in it, but, but, but you've sent widows away, empty. Job, the arms of the fathers were crushed. You had to have done something because God always punishes sin, and if you're sick, he's punishing your sin. That's the deal, Job. That's my experience. Job, God is high in the heavens. He sees everything you're doing. Just confess your sins and get it over with. Why are you waiting? Look at verse 22, verse 1, or 22, verse, chapter 22, verse 21. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby, good will come to you. Just agree with God. Be at peace. Well, this time, in this third round, Job basically ignores the words of Eliphaz. He has his own questions. He's confused. He's perplexed. And at this point, Job says, God, where in the world are you? Where are you? Chapter 23, verse 3. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. God, where are you? Look at verse 8. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I do not 
perceive him. And, and on the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. And, and, he, and, and he turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way I should take. He knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I come out as gold. Most people think Job is saying, when I get through this, when I get through this um, trial, I'm going to come out purified as gold. That's not what Job's saying. Job's saying, if God would put me on the stand, and if I would have an attorney there, I would come out as gold. I would come out as innocent. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way. Have not turned aside. I have departed from the commandments of, the, of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than any portion of food. I have not sinned against him. And yet, here I am. We're going to stop there. I said the book of Job is a little confusing as we go through it sometimes, right? It's got a lot of questions. And if you want every sermon tied up, nice and neat at the end, this ain't going to happen in the book of Job. We're going to have to stop sometimes when Job is still asking questions, and here he is. God, where are you? Let's stop here for three things I see with this conversation. Number one, and this is very important, all suffering is not the result of sin. All suffering is not the result of sin. Now, certainly, if I rob a bank, I'm going to go to prison, right? So my in prison is the result of what I did. And if I abuse my body with drugs, there are going to be consequences to that. And if I, would, if I would walk out on my family, there are consequences to that. But as we learn through Job, our suffering is not always the result of our sin. And we should never put that burden on anyone going through suffering. And you don't have to put it on yourself. No one is perfect. And we live in a sinful world, and sometimes suffering is caused by the sin of others. But not all suffering is caused by sin, and that is a strong lesson from the book of Job. I remember teaching Job many, many, many years ago in a Bible study, and there was a person who I really thought was a very mature believer, and she continued to argue with me, Job had to have done something wrong. He had to have done something wrong. I said, well, show me where. It says he was blameless and upright, and he feared God, and he turned from evil. He had to have done something wrong. God doesn't, that just doesn't happen. See, it doesn't, it doesn't fit, does it? Sometimes God's actions don't fit into our human minds. So what do we do with that? That's the second thing we learned from Job. God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. From our standpoint, many things on earth don't make sense, do they? Do the shootings in South Florida make sense? Do the things going around the world make sense? From where we stand, a lot of things just don't make sense. And God is sovereign, even when things seem unfair. And like Job, remember, Job is not about our ultimate reward in heaven. Job's about real time, real life. And like Job, we cry out to God and we say, are you there? It feels like you've left me alone. 
feels like I'm by myself. God, where are you? Sometimes we just have to take it by faith that we know that he is there. And he's at work. And he never leaves us. And he never forsakes us. And he's always enough. He's always enough. He's enough even in our questions. He's enough even in our pain. He's enough even in our doubt. He's enough even in our suffering. He's enough even in our loss when our hearts are broken. The psalmist says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. Last night, right here, we had a celebration service for um, uh, a person in our congregation, Angela Mize. Uh, Angela and Mitch are part of our church family. And Angela was... An ama- just an amazing woman. Uh, she was a strong follower of Christ. She was active uh, in the community, known in the community. She was, a, she was a realtor and had a nursing degree before that, just had a great care for people, developed just tremendous uh, friendships. And back in uh, 2011, Angela was diagnosed with, with cancer. And, and as I spoke to her family and then I spoke to a lot of her friends, I, I I just heard all these echoes through some extremely difficult times. She was always positive and upbeat. Even the, even the most difficult times, she, would, she never let her illness define her. In fact, when she would get bad news, she would tell her friends, okay, we have one day to be down, but that's it. And then we're going to make a plan, and we're going to get back to it. One friend said, she offered her suffering to the Lord, never doubting that God had a greater plan for her. In the end, she was confident where she would go. She told Mitch often, when I get to heaven, not if, but when I get to heaven, and when I'm in heaven, She was confident that when she closed her eyes in death, she was going to see her Savior. And she told her family, you know what? Guys, in a blink of an eye, you're going to be there with me. One friend said this. I believe her, I I love what what this person said. I believe her faith gave her the courage to fight but also the peace that God is in control. Boy, that wraps it up, doesn't it? Her faith gave her the courage to fight. God, I can't do this by myself. And the peace that God is in control. That's where we leave leave Job today. He's waiting on God. He's not cursing God. He's just communicating with God. He's doing, he's doing real-time prayer. God, I don't get this. Where are you? I need your help. I need your strength. You're in control. Be assured, if you're in a Job situation, God has not left you. He never will. He never will forsake you. And he is always enough. And sometimes, you know what? We just have to wait. Just hang on and wait. Third thing that we see here, we need to be those who comfort and encourage 
the suffering. First of all, we need to show up. Job had more than three friends. Only three friends showed up. For seven days, they did a great job. They just sat in silence. And then they started talking. Eliphaz had to make sure his theology was based on on observation and experience fit Job's suffering. Job, you're a sinner. Your sin's causing you to suffer. Repent and turn to God. All that while Job's sitting at the city dump covered in blisters and crying out to God. And finally, Job says, miserable comforters are you all. When someone's going through a difficult time, grief, loss, huge challenges of life, we're not there to fix the problem. We're not there to heal the hurt. We're not there to repair the damage. We can't. Only God can do that in His timing. So we don't need to show up with a bunch of Christian cliches. We just need to show up. Joe Bailey was a Christian writer. Uh, He wrote for a bunch of different magazines. He wrote for an old magazine called Eternity. He kind of blogged before blogging was popular, writing these columns in magazines. And Joe and his wife buried three of their seven sons. One when the son was 18 days old. Another son at five years old had leukemia. And then another son at 18 years old had a a sledding accident. Sharing from what he learned in his deep grief, listen to what Bailey wrote. But when no answer is forthcoming, we don't attempt to rationalize. It could have been worse. Look at how many people heard the gospel at the funeral service. Things are getting so bad on earth, think of what your son has been spared for not growing up. Bailey said, reason, we believe, is deceptively weak crutch for faith. Reason gropes for dark in the dark for answers while faith waits on God. That's powerful stuff. I want to read that again. Reason, we believe, is a deceptively weak crutch for faith. Reason gropes in the dark for answers while faith waits for God. Bailey wrote a book. It was called The View from a Hearse. Listen to how he describes what happened right after one of his children died. He said, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me about God's dealings of what it happened, of what it had happened, of hope beyond the grave of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except I wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more. 
listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. We need to be those who comfort and encourage people who are hurting, not trying to fix them, not trying to instruct them, not trying to challenge them. We want to be comforters. We don't want to be those who the person suffering says, man, I'm glad they finally left. We'd rather be those, wouldn't we? For people to say, man, I hated to see them go. Job knew that in heaven there would be a witness for him, an advocate, an intercessor. That's what he wanted, a mediator. Job, Job, Job wanted this friend in heaven to plead his cause. Job's companion were trying to testify against him, but he wanted a heavenly defense attorney who could speak on his behalf. Back at chapter 16, back at chapter 16, verse 19. Job says, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. I need an advocate in heaven. I need a defense attorney who will plead my case before God. We have that one, don't we? His name is Jesus. And he is the one that God sent to plead our case before God. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, even in the pain, even in the struggles, even in our questioning, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We have Jesus. 1 John chapter 2 says, the advocate, the intercessor, for the righteous. Aren't you glad we have Jesus? We're going to take communion uh, at this time, and uh, communion is open for anyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. You do not have to be a member of our church. You have to know you've trusted in Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God. And as you take the bread and the cup, Just thank God that he is sovereign and you're not. Thank God that he's God and you're not. And he has sent an advocate. He has sent that one who pleads 
our case before him in heaven. Jesus is our intercessor. Romans chapter 8 says, he's the one who is interceding for us. Holy Spirit is praying for us with groanings too deep for words. We have someone in heaven who's always there, but now we know we have Jesus. And as you hold that cup and the bread, just thank God for sending his son die for you on the cross and to intercede for you right now as your defense attorney, as your advocate before the Father. Lord, help us. Lord, don't, don't, please don't let us just take communion as something we do on the third weekend of the year, of the month. Lord, let this be a special time between us in you. And as we hold that cup and hold that bread and then wait until we take it together, Lord, help us to thank you for sending Jesus to be our advocate. Help us to thank you for being God even when we don't understand what's going on in our life. Make this a special time between just us and you. In Christ's name, amen.